Welcome back to Switched On, a platform for our emerging generations who are looking at belonging to a community that upholds what it means to learn and grow from life's experiences in order to fulfill one's potential, becoming more switched on in the process. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, guys. Hope you're tuning in somewhere comfy and then or even in the car Brayden and I are joined by Mr Tom Boyd how are you going mate boys well you know at least two ex-hack AFL footballers on the <laughs> call I don't know Tom if you played as well but um great to be with you both uh you know I'm looking forward to today's uh today's chat bloody oath mate we're, st- we're stoked to get you on <laughs> well the thing that you got to remember is when you finish footy uh yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to have a couple of outstanding moments in quite a mediocre career, but people just remember me for that, and they still think that I'm half decent, and they all want me to come play for their country <laughs> footy club. And then I turn up, and I haven't kicked a football since August, and um, you know I'm not exactly the fittest um, I've ever been in my life. So uh, then you go, oh, I'm not sure I can get a kick in the ones anymore, but maybe I'll go play fullback in the two. <laughs> nah, mate, it's the muscle memory, surely. <laughs> So you're talking about well, that, that you, so you're referring to that great moment of kicking that goal, aren't you? <laughs> Dale, Dale Morris oh, tackle and you've just taken advantage and kicked oh, the I was going to save that for the end, but yeah, how many times do you think you've heard that or like people repeated that back to you? Do you know well, what I'm talking about? The way about? I describe it is that if I had a dollar for every time that someone had asked me if I deserved the Norm Smith and if I'd heard Brian Taylor's commentary, I would have made back that two and a bit million bucks to go back to the footy club when I was Because so. uh, I at least watched it a couple of times a week, I reckon. And then it's just, I think I've just got memorised and my brain's Franklin, Takamai Morris, boy took the advantage and played on from inside the centre square. <laughs> boys kicked a goal. Boys hit the goal. Inside the square. Fuck. <laughs> It's, it's um, such a, um, of all of the moments to actually swear, it never made sense to me that he tacked it on the end. Like, yeah, so it just did, didn't sound so like true. a natural, isolated. natural time. To, yeah, it was just such a strange way to finish the sentence. But, um, you know, my sort of the un, unspoken and uncelebrated part of that whole commentary, which I really enjoyed, is Luke Darcy in the background just absolutely pissing up. himself going, <laughs> oh, he's dropped the magic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, very good. I'm not sure if you heard WA's commentary. I think it was Dennis Cometti. He's got a really good one as well. I can't quite remember it, but that was oh, his. Yeah, well, Dennis, Dennis was doing the seven footage uh, yeah. that day, I think. So his is the stadium holds its breath. Yes, yes. And then the Western suburbs are up. So the only reason I know that is because, one, I've seen it a few times, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, whenever I'm feeling a bit down, I just watch my own highlights as we all that do. Makes two of us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then. Um, and then at the same time, we had a few sort of fan books come out, you know, with great photos from the day and, um, you know, great photos from the final series. And one of them was called A Stadium Holds Its Breath, Breath, which was all of our sort of family and friends photos that had taken behind the scenes shots, you know, on their cameras and photo, yeah. uh, and phones over the course. It's quite amazing, you know. Like when you look at the... Um, the depiction of the AFL Grand Final through the lens of the, you know, traditional media, great photos, great footage, you know, broadcast level. And then you actually go behind the scenes and you look at the photos that, you know, the mums and dads took. It's it's a whole nother sense of the uh, the personalities behind the scene, I think. And yeah, it's one of my sort of favourite books that the club put together. I think Peter Gordon actually put it together himself. So I couldn't agree more. Like I was obviously lucky enough to be at the club when, when the Eagles won the 2018 and you just see like photos and videos like I've got videos from the change rooms and you know that raw vision that no one sees and 
like that's the that's the good stuff that you sort of still remember. Not that I was I didn't and unfortunately get to play in it, but you still be a part of it. And I don't know, it's I agree. Like it's the the better side rather than all the media and the posing and and all that sort of stuff. It's the actual yeah good moments. Yeah. What what's what's that like? Because you know, uh, again, I mean, I, I'm very fortunate to obviously have played in the game, but. Um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of my teammates who were either, you know, on the edge of selection and were lucky enough to be picked or, you know, in the uh, the alternate, not be picked. And also, um, you know, the poor people who've been injured during the final series in particular. But, you know, I think it's an unspoken about part of playing in, in final series in particular, but also grand finals is that the players were obviously are very close but miss out. But what, what was that? I mean, obviously not the greatest time in your life, I imagine, but what was that like for you? It was tough, like, through... Because I was emergency for the last, I think, two games of the season, then plus um, the whole final series. So, like, I did everything lead up that the boys did. I did the training, flew over with them that day, did the... Um, I was in the parade, did everything like that, um, being one of the four emergencies and, like, trained on the G for captain's run and, and things like that, which was all really fun. And then you're still playing like you're going to play. And then once you, like... Mate, I was pretty lucky to um, be standing like when the boys were warming up. I was on the like on the over where they run out and just standing there. Yeah. And like that's when it really hit me. Like I may never get this opportunity. Like yeah. Ever again and and like it's it was it was a exciting but pretty dull feeling because you're like like if I, if this doesn't happen for me or we don't get back here or I get delisted or injured or something then. I'll never get the play. So I literally like soaked, soaked that in. And then after the celebrations, like you, you're obviously so happy for everybody and, and the team, but then you're sort of sitting there and you're like, that, that thing, that feeling comes through you, like a little bit of jealousy. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like as you would know, and you would have talked to a few boys about, but you're still so happy, but it's it was tough. Like um, yeah. to be so close, especially being in an emergency and, and not getting that opportunity um yeah i um i'll say it so you don't have to but there were stages in my career you know where i was playing twos and um you know i'm playing good footy i'm trying to get back in the side maybe i've been dropped because i had a couple of bad games or whatever it was particularly sort of when i first got to the bulldogs and i'm sitting there going hey it'd be nice if you know jack redpath or whoever's playing in my position kicks a few out in the fall and plays like shit or two um you know maybe they just have like a bit of a tight hamstring this week so i can get back out there yeah, and, yeah, and have a crack of, and they, yeah. like it's the sinister side of footy that you know people don't like talking about you know understandably when they're in it but you know i think the you know it's important to be honest about what it's like being on the edge of the team and it's it's horrible it's um, the worst you know, yeah, you're the you're the twenty third, you know, picked player, but you might as well be the forty fifth because hmm. you're dealing with the exact same thing that you know the rookies are, or anyone who's playing bad footy in the VFL or the Waffle or wherever they're in the state leagues. And I think you know, one of the things that I really hated about footy was that feeling, you know, that people who I loved. I mean, Jack is Jack Redpath is one of the greatest guys I ever played with. Hilarious, good footballer, worked his ass off, um, had come from a senior sort of recruit, and that's what footy brings out in you. You, you want people, um, you know, around you to fail at different stages. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because that's you the natural inclination. Yeah. yeah, you want your chance, right? You yeah. feel like you deserve it. You've all worked just as hard as each other, basically, to get to where you've gotten to. Um, you've wanted to do this since you were a little boy and, you know, someone's in your way. So you 
don't want them to be in your way anymore. And unfortunately, the way to do that is just by playing better footy and, um, you know, trying to juggle those two emotions was always a challenge for me. And I think getting out of the game, you work out that you can actually just watch footy and go, well, these people that are putting their bodies on the line every single week are incredible. Um, you know, the people that are inspiring and, um, you know, it's great to see my ex-teammates play well. Um, but when you're in it, it's sort of very difficult to see the wood for the trees. A big tie. That was my last probably year and a half on the list. Like yeah. my my last year was I was living with one of the one of the boys and he was we're both midfielders at the time and he was getting, you know, picked over me and I'm just like, you know, you go to training and you're training with him and then all of a sudden he's playing and I'm not and he's getting picked over me and you're just like Will you serve him a bit of raw chicken. That's or something? mate, that's about as yeah. I've thought about it many times. <laughs> like, and you know, like it just and you get the training and you and you're like, oh, I want to outdo this bloke, or I need to perform, I need to do more extras, and I need to be seen to do be doing more than this guy. And it, that's what I really struggled. Like you just said, you you try and do, I guess, everything or do more than someone or just compete, which is what you need to do to, I guess, become better. But it just it was more of a fire of, I'm doing this, just to be get picked over someone else rather than like and being that selfish side of it. And it just deteriorates your mindset. You just to go away from actually enjoying the game, and um, yeah, it's it's distracting. It yeah. doesn't lead to more focus. It leads no. to more focus yeah. on the wrong things. Exactly. You know, like we, in my career, my first year up in Sydney, I played with, or I lived with. Sorry, I should say, Josh Kelly and Cam McCarthy. And um, you know, there wasn't many times during the year that I wasn't playing when Cam was, but there was quite a few. I think mean, I think Josh probably played for seventeen games in his first year or something like that. And trying to deal with that, you know, when um, now he was drastically in a different position to me. Um, but, you know, I know there was times too where, you know, Cam would be sitting there getting ready to go to Canberra and me and Josh were flying down to Melbourne to see our families and play a game of footy at the MCG. And you're like, it is so difficult when you're in that mm, sort of really yeah. close proximity to teammates and they're at the exact same position. Essentially, we're all first round picks. Um, you know, we all ideally would like to be playing AFL footy. But then when I went back to, down to Melbourne, I lived with Nick Floston. He's one Good of my man. best mates. And, I, I, and, slept um, on the, I slept on his floor for a week. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, my mate, Benny Miller's at Richmond, one of my best mates. Oh, of and, course, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was living with him there for a bit. So I uh, slept with on his, uh, on his <laughs> mattress on his floor with Taz. Taz slept at my feet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's Very just poor Albie turned up. But yeah. but Nico, the funny thing for me was that so in 2014, after I got traded, you get back into the, the AFL with, with the Bulldogs in 15 and they'd been rubbish for a few years. So, you know, I think we had 14 Sunday games during the year and Nico's playing for Richmond, one of the biggest clubs in the land. And I remember him packing up his car to go surfing on a Saturday for two days off and I was just leaving for a captain's run in the morning, you know, having to play Sunday Arvo. And just trying to get at my head around the fact that I could see the schedules that we had were so different and that Nico's was so much easier because one, at the time, they were a good club, so they had good broadcasting schedules. But two, yeah. um, their club was just determined to not overtrain and we were trying to still find the balance, I think, at that stage of you know, proving who we were as a team, getting on top of these Sunday games and also you know, trying to refresh our young sort of list throughout the year. Yeah, it's fascinating you say that because it's the same as over here. Like you get West Coast play Sunday. So yeah, for me, it was interesting. Like you play waffle if you're not playing. You play waffle on the Saturday and then you've got to recover in the morning as a group and then you've got to go to the Sunday Arvo game. So your whole weekend's footy. You've got to rock up Monday because you've got to 
you're in the waffle. So, you know, you've already recovered extra for a day. You got longer days. And interesting to hear that this, that Richmond still do that to this day. Like they've just had a few days off because they don't play till Monday. Um, like and, and Ben Whoa. says they're on time. Man, they got time off all the time. Mm. Yeah, like, it's so funny, right? Because um, yeah. the, the, the AFL schedule doesn't care about what day of the week it is, except when you play Sundays. So, you know, if you if you're during the week and you've got a Saturday game, you might have a Thursday off, you might have a Friday off, you might have a Wednesday off, depending on how the club does it. But regardless, that, that day will always float around, you know, where the game is for many clubs. Some clubs have a set day off, of course, but most clubs, I think, still float that yeah, day. Yeah. But then if it's a Saturday, I'll be like, yeah, take Sunday off, mate. It's Sunday. And then if it's a Sunday game, they're like, you're not getting Monday off. It's yeah, exactly. Monday, mate. It's, yeah. like, it's a work week. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, how does that make any sense? It's, like, a, it's a system, mate. You just yeah. end up working an extra, you know, 48 hours a week. And, and to be clear for everyone who's listening, we're not complaining that no. we're doing <laughs> extra work. We're complaining the fact that we weren't doing anything extra. We were just forced to go to the club and basically sit around and do nothing. Do nothing, literally. And, and that was always the most frustrating thing for me. It's like you turn up for six hours on a Monday, you do two ice baths, you sit in a meeting for an hour and a <laughs> half, and then you get a massage for 20 minutes. And you're like, well, the rest of the time, I'm just pulling my hair out because I could be you know, mentally refreshing doing something else. Yeah, I'm just sitting upstairs drinking coffees. Yeah. Uh, I'd love. I mean, I would love to talk about footy all day, but um, just in terms of getting back to the crux of the importance of this episode, um, we, we normally uh, ask our guests at the start of the episode, but Tommy, mate, what did you do this morning to get switched on? Uh, I went for a walk with my wife and my one-year-old, Rani. Um, awesome. I was working last night till late, so I was up in uh, Rochester in Northern Victoria, up near Echuca, doing some work um, with WorkSafe, whom I'm an ambassador for. And I didn't get home to probably 11.30, probably didn't get to bed till quarter to 12. And then, so this morning has really just been around getting my brain working so I can chat to you lads amongst, you know, handling a few emails and calls that I need to get on top of for the, for the start of the day. So, you know, I think one of the great things about having a child is that uh, there is a lot of routine that comes with it. Um, and they sort of seek that routine out. And for me, lining it up with the ability to say, okay, well, I don't need to start work at uh, nine o'clock on the dot. I can get out and have a coffee at 8.30, yeah. um, go for a bit of a walk, get some fresh air, have a chat to Anna, um, make sure my, my daughter's happy and grab that coffee and then come back and dive into work before she goes down for her first nap. That works really well for me. Yeah, love and, it, mate. You know, I think it's, it's a blessing, I think, because... You know, as I was explaining to you boys before the pods uh, started, you know, I've got a very heavy work schedule, but um, it's quite uh, flexible in some ways where I sort of spread my time between four or five major roles that I do. Uh, and it often means extra travel and late nights, as I mentioned, but um, at least it gives me that time to actually spend some time with my family when I, when I do get the chance. So on the back of that, coffee order, you're in, you're, you live in Melbourne. Here we, I'm very interested to hear what this coffee order might be. Well, I drink uh, just black filtered coffee at home, yep. but I do drink a, just a, just a latte, man. I don't. I'm, I'm not into oat. <laughs> not I'm not oat into turmeric, yeah. soy. <laughs> if oh. anyone comes at me with an orange latte again, I'm gonna have to, you know throw it on the ground. I think, unfortunately. Well, you, well mate, you're gonna hear Tom. Me uh, made across here goes with the old oat milk matcha. Iced and all oh, this stuff. Mate, it depends on the it depends on the day. Like this morning, I had a iced long black. Depends how I'm feeling, you know. There's a change up. That's man. such a 
that's such a <laughs> that is such a blunt juxtaposition between the <laughs> matches soy to an ice latte. Like, it depends if I'm trying to have a break from coffee or not because sometimes I just get oh it gets a bit much for me and the other days I just want to yeah matches oh it's a bit different change up but yeah oat milk's a big yes from me actually oat milk flat white mm 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 yeah, yeah. Some of those oat milks are so sweet, though. You know, my, my, um, so when I started drinking coffee when I was young, again, it was just black filtered coffee at home. Yeah. So my mum's Danish, and that's basically what you drink. So when I got into footy, it was, um, you know, as we sort of alluded to before, you just sit around and you drink coffees all day. <laughs> yeah. Um, just the amount of milk started getting to me. So once I, you know, we've moved into our own place, and, um, over the last six or seven years, and Anna and I have got a home together, it's like, you know, a good place for me to start the day is just with no milk, but you know, a nice, nice smooth coffee, mate, is uh, is a good place for me to start. Love it. Love you it. sound very switched on. What about you, Braden? What what I do? What do you do this morning? It's quite common. I went for a walk myself this morning, uh, which is very nice. It's um, it's been a bit like still good weather over here. Oh, it's, it's been the best weather. But the I sun's love obviously weather. getting up a bit later. But Shut yeah. up. <laughs> uh, the sun's still up a bit later, but it's still beautiful. I think it was about yeah, it's up five thirty and. Just went for a little cruise and, mate, birds are chirping, yeah. the sun was rising and, yeah, it was, it was nice. So that's how it actually really switched me on this morning, which is nice. Gorgeous. You? Yeah, I got up early. I think it was like, oh, 6.30-odd, went outside, quick meditation and then did my stuff And because um, I got an essay due today and then went for coffee with my homeboy, Lockie, down at um, Cool Beans in East Frio. Um, and then, yeah, came back, showered and... Got prepped for the potty this morning. And now we're in a booth where it's nice 25 <laughs> degrees outside. So, Sorry, Tom, yeah, just well, rub it in. <laughs> uh, we skipped summer this year in Melbourne. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. But it's uh, current. I mean, we've had some really nice mornings the last week. But then at about 10.30, the clouds roll in and it's been miserable. Yeah. So anyway, um, what I touch on. Because I'm so fascinated by it all. By you just literally said you, you're spreading your time between um, so many different roles, and um, obviously what you're doing now is a, a big on speaking, keynote speaking, um, you know, and being a sort of really important figure in that in that area. And I just want you to sort of run us through the different roles you're playing, um, and like, I guess you can't really say your favourite one, but sort of what they all involved and how they're all different. If that's right. Yeah, I think it's a really, really good question. So uh, to, to give a bit of a comparison to us, I would say how most people approach work. Um, if you imagine that, you know, you've got a regular role and a regular job, generally what you're doing is, um, you know, you're using the vehicle of whatever role you have to fund your life, yes. right? So um, the primary benefit of doing most jobs is the income that people garner from them. Um, and yes, there are subsidiary um, things that can be gained such as you know uh, fulfillment or perhaps you enjoy the work or perhaps you like being challenged or growing or you know climbing the ladder of the business that you're in or working with the individuals that are in the business there's all those great things too but primarily the reason why many people work and most people unfortunately they work for money now i've come out of um, a time in my life where i earned a whole heap of money playing footy is is more well documented than i would have um <laughs> Uh, estimated before my manager leaked my contract about two yes. days after I signed it, um, <laughs> which is a great advertisement, by the way. Good business, <laughs> Um So when I got out of the game uh, in 2019, I uh, I just sort of got to the point where I was ready to take the next step. And I didn't know exactly what that step would be, but I knew the direction which I wanted to take it. And that was 
heading towards working in the space of mental health. And I think the reason for that was, you know, I just remember sitting in all the talent pathways and all the big meeting rooms, and fancy education seminars that we got sort of exposed to as, as elite athletes, particularly in the juniors. And I don't remember a single session that was spoken about how to take care of mental health and what that actually meant. And so when, you know, I had symptoms and uh, challenges that really affected me pop up in my life as an AFL football, everything was brand new. So when something new, unfortunately, there's this stage of discovery that you go through and, you know, in my, my case, basically denying that it was going on or hoping it would just magically fix itself. So um, by the time I stepped out of the game, uh, I'd gone to the stage where purpose wasn't a problem um, and it was much more around the practicalities behind making it a reality. And um, as you mentioned, the first sort of stage that I went through is I jumped into the speaking side of things and that really came from the fact that people just kept asking, you know, can you come and tell us what happened? Because, yep. um, you know, we've watched from afar and it's an incredible story and you've given up all this money and, you know, you've been really honest about what you've been through. Can you tell us what actually happened? And I probably got to the stage at the end of 2019, entering 2020, where it looked like it was going to be my full-time gig. You know, I probably had 50 engagements locked in. Um, I was going to be traveling. I was going to be all over the country. It was really, really exciting. And then, of course, COVID happens, and I'm forced to basically sit amongst the fact that I've lost all my work in about a week, much like many people did. It's certainly yeah, not a, yeah. a point, of, point of pity, but more of a point of a... When you're in a transitory period of time in your, in your life, the last thing you want is a global pandemic, just to throw a bit more sort of uncertainty into the mix. And then um, what that forced me to really reconcile with was that for the first time in my life is I had so much extra time. And, you know, I don't know what exactly spurred me on, but I found myself in a position where I felt like I needed to actually put a bow on the sort of six or seven years I'd been in the league. Yeah. And so I sat down and I started writing. Um, and before long, I had sort of 70,000 words on a page that I thought was quite, wow. um, you know, it was quite a, a, a good version of what I felt like I'd been through as a young man. Yeah. And uh, went to a publisher, pitched it out to them, got a book deal, and then basically sat down and did it all over again. And, you know, probably as a total 200,000 words later between the first and second edition, I had a book to work with. And Wow. I think for me, the, the great part of doing that was, uh, one, it sort of, as I said, let me put a bow on the previous time in my life. It let me actually analyze what had happened and sit in the moments that perhaps, you know, I'd had regrets in the past or things that I, you know, had really struggled with uh, and put it on a page uh, to hopefully be useful to others. Uh, and likewise, throughout that period, obviously some speaking stuff started to occur. Um, but I also realized that in and amongst the book that I didn't want to be, you know, suspect to this fluctuations that any industry, but particularly things like the speaking industry have. So I decided to fill in, um, you know, my time with basically volunteering, uh, volunteering my services to different businesses who I'd met, um, trying to get a bit of a picture of what it all looked like and eventually found myself working with a company called Everperform, which is a performance technology business who specialise in uh, human performance in the accounting sector, which really lined yeah, right. up with my background. Yeah, and then awesome. um, on top of that, you, um, I started engaging with Lifeline, doing a lot of fundraising for them and finally formalized a, uh, an ambassadorship for a few years that's been locked in. Um, I've also found myself as an ambassador for WorkSafe, doing their country footy and netball games and really going out and getting in touch with, with the country communities of Victoria around what's you know important to look after your physical health at the workplace, which is what WorkSafe's most known for, but also the mental side of things, which has become such an apparent um, challenge in the past 100%. five years in particular. And finally, more recently, joining on as the 
um, Western Bulldogs Community Foundation ambassador to give a bit back to the community that's looked after me for a long time. So between all of those things um, and being a parent uh, and, and a husband, I've I found myself with a, a big vehicle with many different sort of gears to it, but all sort of pushing in the same direction, which is, you know, a place that I've worked very hard to be at, but also one that I'm, you know, very grateful to, to have found myself in. Yeah, that's been amazing. It's just, I think Bray and I have tuned into a lot of the ways that you've turned, the, like, what was, um, what was a tragedy into such a triumph and, um, and then just being able to see how you've been so vulnerable and um, shown such courage. Like it's something, it's something that's really inspirational for oh, Braden, myself and a lot of other youth as well that are coming up. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've, the courage word, it doesn't sit that well with me. And, I, and there's a very distinct reason for it. Sure. Um, you know, when I was going through my issues, particularly in 2017, you know, I haven't slept in weeks. I'm playing AFL footy. I'm getting injured. I'm sick. Um, you know, can't concentrate, can't play footy as well as I want to, you know, like I got to the point where, you know, my mental health had gone so poorly for such a long time that my physical health had taken such a hit that I couldn't do my job. And so I wasn't left with a lot of options. Um, and that in part was the scariest thing because when you're a, you know, a guy paid as much as I was, um, you don't get the chance to just say, Oh, can I just have a couple of weeks off? I'm not feeling the best. Yeah. So, I let that anchor and the responsibility and the weight that comes with that sort of really pin me to, I've got to be out there for my teammates, got to do my job, got to do my job for so long that by the time you get to the position where you actually have to make a a decision and get to a choice that isn't going to be comfortable, it's, it's incredibly complex. But at the same time, it was a choice that I had to make because there was no other way around it. And, you know, sitting through, um, you know, the decisions around how I address the public and, you know, the fans in particular and the fact that I wanted people to know that I'm not sitting there going, oh, geez, those blokes on Twitter are making me sad. Um, or, you know, you should all feel sorry for the guy who's getting paid a million dollars a year at 22 years old. Yeah. But more so, guys, I've got anxiety, depression, insomnia. My body's not up to it and I can't do my job. I need time to get, you know, to just like any other injury, I need time to let it heal and rehab it so that I can come out and actually do my job long-term as opposed to doing it in a way that had been you know, severely compromised for a period of time at that stage. Two things on that. And the hard thing with that is it's not physical. So you, no one can see it. So it's not that tangible. That's the hard thing. Like I know you written in the, wrote it in the book as well, but um, on, the, on the book, mate, it, um, obviously when I got there, listed, I, I struggled last year really hard and because um, I wrapped my whole identity around football, right? So, Reading your book, I've it's interesting, and I I might bring it up a bit later. There's a lot of similarities between some of the things you were going through around performance, anxiety, no sleep, the skin fold stuff, all that sort of thing. And um, man, I after reading your book, it's, it's not it's not your fault, but I um I finished up playing footy, ended up probably halfway through last year. I ended up doing the plantar fasciitis anyway. But um, once I read your book, mate, I sort of that's when I realised, like, I actually don't have the passion to rock up the training anymore, to go and play, to kick a footy around. And it was to the point where I knew I was probably becoming uh, a bit of a hazard around the club, like my energy level wasn't there. I ended up actually had a panic attack uh, before one game. Um, like, these sort of things started to happen. And this is just playing waffle footy. So, you know, once I read your book and understood, you know, life's not all about footy and the challenges of, of that, it, it really opened my eyes. And I just want to thank you for that, for writing that book, because it um, 
yeah, I've followed your journey for a while and, and to, to read that helped me make a lot of choices and I haven't been happier since putting it down and, and actually making that choice away. So one, I thank you for, for writing that book because it's helped me a lot. Um, but two, yeah, how did you deal with the, the not being, it's not a physical thing, it's, it's all in the head so no one can see it, but then you're trying to prove to people that you're actually, that there's something going on but people just can't understand it. Yeah, well, firstly, mate, I mean, um, I really appreciate those kind words. It, it, you know, I didn't know how it would help people the, when I set out to write it, but I remember sitting down with the publishers at the time and saying, guys, if you want an expose that's designed to shock and awe and sell, you've got the wrong guy. And if we're going to do this, I'm going to have 100% autonomy on how this book comes out and every word's going to be my own. And, and to Ellen and Ellen's credit, they were really open to that, which was great. So cool. um, on, the, on the communication side of things, like I think one of the great challenges that we have as people and it's not a sinister thing i think it's just an efficiency thing is that we look at others and we just go what are the four or five things that make someone happy well they seem to have a good relationship earn some money good career maybe they've got good friends maybe they do some fun things like that's enough and so when we look at other people who have got presumably what that is and you know in my case definitely what that was you know great career great income great uh, partner future wife great friends, et cetera, et cetera. Like I had everything on paper that, that made life um, look good. We tend to just dismiss any sort of turmoil that other people might have based on the fact that oh, they'll be okay because they've got everything else in order. And I think for me, one of the great challenges to explain to people was that, yeah, I'm not lying in bed at night going, oh, how good is it earning this much money? Like that's not gonna make me feel any better. No. And when I'm trying to communicate with people, hey, this is what's going on. In the initial stages, to be honest with you, um, there was some surprise. Geez, we didn't know it was this bad. Um, you know, we didn't realize you hadn't been sleeping at all. And look, I've, you know, I've said this publicly quite a few times, but there, you know, I've been registering my sleep being terrible for months um, in the club every single day. And you know, what I think it sort of struck me as was that their first reaction was to support me definitely right across the board the club was incredibly supportive the players in particular but the coaches everyone was involved but i think where it becomes really tricky is that you know what happens after a week you know why you know are you feeling better are you you know ready to play when are you going to play what's next when when's your recovery going to be finished all of these questions and when you have an open-ended injury which actually later on in my career when i had a really bad back um it was quite quite a similar experience you've got this impatience that doesn't have an answer which just causes frustration yeah and you know to, in defense of the club the club has paid me an absolute boatload of money to play a footy for them and they needed a ruckman and they needed a key forward out there and i understand that then you know desire for me to be out there and out there playing but when you know when i wrote about it in a book i think you know when the question gets asked well, what's wrong with you now a couple of weeks after taking time off and i'm standing there going well i hadn't slept for two weeks at that stage now i haven't slept for four or whatever the numbers were like how can i be expected to play footy when that's you know such a prevalent prevalent issue in my life and i think you know the more i explained it um which probably took for me to actually get over the worst of it to be able to do it effectively um that's when it became a bit uh, more understandable. And I think the other thing, whether it's fair or not fair, I think tying it to something tangible to everyone like sleep has made it more palatable because everyone understands the impacts of poor sleep. Yeah. A lot of people don't know whether they've been sad or they've been depressed. A lot of people don't know if whether they've been stressed or anxious. 
um, it's hard to draw that line uh, across the board with everyone in society, but sleep is a universal thing that's required for everyone. I think that's been helpful in explaining my challenges over the years to, to different people. Yeah. Well, you talk a lot about those questions that you had and regarding the, your future. And I mean, for everyone, the, a lot of the future is uncertain. And then when you're constantly anticipating the future, it just leads to more anxiety. And I guess, is that something that really grew with you during that period? Yeah. Well, what's the, uh, what's the saying is anxiety is living in the future and depression is living in the past. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Kind, kind of, uh, kind of quite true. And I think, you know, it's no, nothing's more indicative of that than, um, you know, a typical week in the life of me during my worst periods, particularly around 2015, 16, 17. Now it wasn't the whole three year period, but you know, there'd be months where it'd be off and on. Um, and that would be, you know, I'd play a game of footy. Um, so if you take it from a Monday, Monday I'd rock into the club, be exhausted because I hadn't been sleeping well. I'd go and train Tuesday, I'd have a day off. Day off would be great because I'd be you know, trying to surf or get my head out of the game or whatever it was. Thursday I'd train. And then we'd go into this sort of game day preparation mode like you do in an AFL week. So Thursday night, I basically wouldn't sleep at all because I'd be incredibly anxious about the game that was ahead. Sure. Friday night, would be the same. Saturday, I'd play. And, you know, after basically not sleeping for two nights, you have to summon basically every ounce of energy that you have in your body and your mind just to get through the four quarters, let alone actually, you know, thrive in that, in that environment. Then it'd be difficult to sleep again because playing night games of AFL footy is not exactly conducive to sleep. I'd finally get some rest. I'd just wake up, particularly after bad games or poor personal performances. Um, and I'd get whacked with this incredibly large wave of depression for a couple of days. And I'd basically not be able to drag myself out of bed until I absolutely had to to get myself to the footy club on a Monday. And then that cycle would just kick in all over again. And I think that represents exactly what we're talking about, which is, for the two days following a game, I'd worry about what had happened in the past yeah. and my body would just refuse to get up and go again because it just didn't want to be put through, you know, what I'd, I'd put it through the week before. Um, but by way of obligation and need and responsibility and all that sort of stuff, I forced myself to actually keep doing it. And then once I get to a certain stage in the week, you know, then it would be, you know, um, fear around performing in the future. Sure. And yeah. trying to get on top of those two things whilst not sleeping is impossible. Trying to get on top of those two things when sleeping is still difficult. And, um, you know, it was something that particularly for a guy like me, who's quite a chronic overthinker, quite an analytical person, um, someone who did really well at school and thinks about everything all the time, which is really useful, by the way, when you finish footy. But mm -hmm. when you're playing a game built on instinct, your sort of lizard brain is much faster than your uh, analytical one. And I think trying to find the balance between those two was always a challenge for me. So. You say with that, mate. You're not sleeping. What What are you doing? Like what? Because I I don't like I don't know much about that that side of things because I've never been through it. But you know you you're not sleeping. So what are you doing at two, three, four? You know in the morning. Like what What's actually happening? What's going through your head? Like are you just sitting there reading? Are you watching TV? Or are you just literally laying in bed trying to sleep? Yeah, it depends. So there was a few different cycles of it. So when I was in Sydney, the first stage that I had was that sort of racing thoughts, just really restless, like. You know, roll over a thousand times and hope that you get comfy and it just never seems to figure itself out. But going through an AFL preseason for the first time whilst not sleeping very well is quite exhausting. And so that sort of shifted over a period of time to where I'd go to sleep really quickly, but I'd wake up every 15 minutes like clockwork and you just never get any proper rest. 
And so you'd sort of feel like you were just in and out of sleep the whole night, which makes the night feel very, very long um, as one symptom. But then once I got back into the stage of, um, you know, those really bad um, night sleep where, you know, not sleeping at all might mean you get realistically, you might get a couple of hours here or, you know, 20 minutes there, 30 minutes here. It's sort of, you know, it's different every night, but it's basically the same in terms of just never getting any proper rest. And when it got really bad and when I wasn't, you know, sleeping really a wink, the, um, the technique that I was told at the time was basically to put a chair next to your bed and you're supposed to sit in the chair, no phone, no book, no distractions and sit there until you essentially just fall asleep. Um, you're basically fighting your brain and getting to a point where you can force it to, to doze off. Once you doze off, you can get into bed and try and fall asleep. And if you wake back up again, you need to repeat it. And so at different stages, you know, I was just in and out of bed, in and out of this chair all night long, trying to get some rest. Um, but that's sort of, you know, essentially that's one of the few techniques other than medication. And look, um, I wasn't big on the sleeping medication because it knocked me around so much. Um, and you know, it's like you wake up tired or you wake up or, you know, almost hung over from these sleeping meds. It's like, what's worse. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the, the techniques that were given to me. And, and look, many people have said, oh, what fixed it and what, what helped it? To be honest, you know, I didn't start sleeping well again until I took time off in 17, where I actually just turned the dial down on what was an incredibly stressful existence for me for a long time. And, you know, get away with my family, turn, turn my head off the, the news and the media and, um, and the football club and the stresses of the football club and just give myself a, a quick break. You know, I think I took five or six weeks off in the end and ended up playing some VFL footy. And whilst it wasn't perfect, I think just the fact that I could take some control back in my life seemed to, to give me some capability to get back on top of a few things. And, um, you know, 2018 was a much better year in that sense. So be like, obviously being tired, you just mentioned your family and, and, your, your beautiful wife now, but how did you cope with the relationships? Like you're tired, you got to train, you can't be bothered. Like you're trying to deal with your, your own things and, and lift yourself up for your own personal stuff with your energy. But then you've got to go in, you've got to show up to the club, you've got to sit in meetings, then you've got to talk to your mum and dad, then you got to hang out and do things, um, you know, with Anna. Like how did you, how did it really affect your relationships? Yeah, the short answer is you don't. You don't hang out with people and and look it's like water right it goes to the path of least resistance and for me um you know the resistance from the football club against any drop in performance or accountability is so significant so you pour whatever energy you have left into performing at the best of your own ability whatever that you know capacity is at any one time and you know i went through the stage where you know anna and i weren't quite living together at the time but for all intents and purposes we pretty much were and I didn't want to keep her up all night. So I'd often ask her to go back and stay at her own apartment. Like it was a horrible time. And, you know, I'm very lucky that Anna stood by me during that period. But, you know, on the parent front, you just, you just run out of energy. You just don't have the capacity to deal with mum's, you know, loving and caring, nagging or questions. And, you know, I think she was very cognizant of the fact that something was going on and probably felt quite helpless. Well, I know that she felt quite helpless at different points, but, um, you don't go to social events, you don't go to hang out with friends, you don't go out of your own way to create more work for you in the social front because you just don't, quite frankly, have the uh, capability to do that. Yes, it's that constant distract and avoid, right. Um, but yeah, I just I also want to bring up, so you talked about those those sleep techniques, but also in terms of, I guess, the, the waking hours where you'd seek other support such as the counselling. Uh, was, was it Lisa, her, her name? 
Yeah, Lisa came basically into the scene. Oh, realistically, in the in the, the capacity that she eventually was um, in for me, probably at the start of the twenty seventeen preseason, so yeah. so end of two thousand sixteen, and that you know it's funny, right? It's like when you win a grand final, as we were talking about before, um, the the understanding of what it takes to get there is so visceral, especially twelve months after or you know six months after it had happened. And given the surgeries that I had and many of my teammates had, and given the issues that I'd faced, I really hadn't gone on top of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I remember just walking into that preseason going, oh, just this huge sense of dread came over me. And that's really where the the anxiety started to ramp up through the roof. And it didn't make any sense, right? It's like pre-Christmas. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that it goes away. There's no real stress in a preseason other than just turning up and being fit and running around until Christmas time happens and then we start looking at teams. So that's when she really was um, needed on my end to engage with her. And, yeah. um, you know, I kind of don't know how many hours I did with her in the end, but hundreds would be certainly not an overstatement. Yeah. How long did it take you to, you know, be comfortable to be vulnerable and actually open up and share off the back? Yeah, of, it's an interesting yeah. one. I, I, I think... Um, so I think what took the longest was actually to engage with her in the first place, because I'd let's just say without getting into too much detail, there'd been some psychologists that I'd sort of been around in the past, which I sort of felt like they were working for the club. Mate, if that's, you will. I, that's funny you say that, mate. I've had, I've had the exact same experience. And, and sometimes they are, right? Sometimes just because they're a psychologist doesn't mean they're working in a psychological capacity. They're in there doing leadership or performance or whatever. And they're actually basically just a consultant. So they're not bound by the same rules. But um, I wasn't a huge fan of sharing. And, and look, the other thing I did really poorly in my career, which I've spoken about a couple of times is, um, you know, I just didn't understand how someone could help me because no one had been a number one pick that had been traded on a seven-year contract for seven million bucks and then won a premiership at 21. Like, that doesn't that didn't exist in my ecosystem or, or or the sphere of people around me. So, if they hadn't done that before, hadn't experienced what I was experiencing, which was quite unique, how could they possibly help me, right? And you know that's a silly way to look at life because, regardless of our own human experience, uh, in terms of the things that we actually do for work or life, the actual experience as people is quite similar, right? We have good days, we have bad days. We need to control our own emotions and set goals and plan and do all that sort of stuff. So um, neglecting that support and neglecting the support from anyone, not just psychologists for quite a while was really what took the longest. And then once we actually got to the stage where Lisa and I were seeing each other, um, it didn't take me too long to basically just tell her everything that had been going on. Um, and she was a wonderful support, particularly as you can probably maybe imagine, at least partially, when you take time off on a million dollar year contract, there's a few hoops you got to jump through. Yeah, <laughs> like, like it's kind of like navigating very sharky waters at that stage. Not to say that they're sharks in terms of the people, but there's just obstacles everywhere. Yeah. Um, and she played a pivotal role in making sure that someone who was as vulnerable as me at that stage was capable of making sound and smart decisions, um, whilst also, you know, protecting my own interests. Um, you know, in the in the midst of quite a difficult set of circumstances. Yeah, so you ought to really share and open up with her and then um, I guess after that, you've really been able to open up with the likes of Rob Murphy, Hamish McLaughlin, Bold Magnets and yeah, as Braden mentioned before, your book, which I haven't got around to reading yet, but uh, Braden's going to give it to me very soon. I'm keen to jump into it. But you do give a lot of insight to that and that vulnerability, but you also jump into insights 
into fulfillment, balance, connectivity. And, um, and those, those are the things that I guess come a lot out of it. And I was just, I was really hoping we could dive a bit deeper into the importance of what they mean to you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, before any of those interviews that you mentioned, um, you know, the decision to, to actually share was off the back of the fact that I felt like I'd left a lot of questions unanswered. And I felt like post 2017 season that if I didn't address it, there was going to be an undeniable um, sort of, uh, you know, fumes in the air around me and that they were going to need to, you know, try and find out what, what had happened. And so I wanted to take the narrative onto my own um, handle. And I remember I did a, a thing for Exclusive Insight, which is Gary Ablett's company through my management. Mm -hmm. I did something with Headspace and, and actually, I think honestly, that's what spurred the next two years being, you know, amongst still challenging, but much, much better was the fact that I could just, you know, take it on and, uh, and address all the things that happened from a specific point of view head on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I find it like, I also in the book, like you mentioned, we talk about the connection, the relationships and, and finding that balance. Um, you had a coffee with Phil Davis. He sat you yeah. down and um, I just love you to, to talk about that because everyone talks about the work-life balance and, and you and now you say you've, you've got it pretty good, right? You, you can get up sort of with the, with the different jobs. You can you can work around that with the family, hanging out with friends and, and doing your, your own thing on the weekends and stuff. But at that time, you know, you're getting asked to go to coffees, events, you know, and, and you're declining it because you want to get away from it and you want to have your own time. How did you find find that because i know a lot of people just in day-to-day -day living want to just fit in and be liked and and you know do anything just to have a group of mates and they sort of put themselves on the back burner a bit every now and then how did you deal with that because that would have been pretty confronting when he sat you down and said you know why aren't you hanging out with the group why don't you like us the boys think your office like that sort of thing yeah i think there's um you know there was two two conversations i had with phil by the way you know for the first, for all the things I would have changed in my career, if, you know, you could, you know, retrospectively alter things, you know, spending time on my own is not one of them. You know, I, I've always enjoyed it. I found it useful. I find the fact that I've got some very close knit friends, but I don't see the need to sit around with 20 guys that I'm working with on my day off. Um, and, you know, I think that whilst Phil's intentions were undeniably good, and I think he was really trying to help me amalgamate with the group, which is exactly what a captain's supposed to do. Um, it's just not the fit for everyone. And, I, you know, I think about it all the time, right? I'm, I'm 27 now. I'm in control of my own life. I've got, you know, all my own work. I manage, you know, many, many different things. I've got people who report into me. And the amount of care that you have when you're 19 about other people and like what they think of you and how do I fit in and it, it's good fitting in. It's great, but it's not the only thing that matters. And I think, you know, I just think about all the time, how different I would approach the game now if I was still playing. Um, not that I want to play by the way, but just being older and more mature and, you know, being sort of in charge of your own destiny. But I think with regards to the, the questions around Phil, there was two things that Phil told me um, in terms of balance and connection that uh, I, as I wrote about in the book, I disagreed with, and I think it was, you know, endemic of the fact that I couldn't explain what was actually going on with myself mentally in, in the sense of not wanting to socialize with a bunch of guys who I lived with and trained with all day. Like yeah. how much more socializing can we do with these people? Exactly. But on the other one was that before I got drafted, I was 
looking at, uh, you know, enrolling in an electrical engineering degree up in Sydney. And, um, and I remember Phil calling me before the draft and basically saying, mate, don't do it. It's too hard. We should just focus on 40. I don't want you to like overwhelm yourself. And again, best intentions, undeniably, um, whether electrical engineering would have been the right path for me is certainly up for debate. But the fact that I didn't start studying is one of my great regrets, I would say, at that stage, because I do feel like if I could have felt normal outside of footy, if I could have started a life outside of football, if I could have had a way to validate who I was beyond just kicking goals and taking marks, I truly think that would have been very useful for a person like me, who, again, is quite, you know, quite a critical thinker and an overthinker, undeniably, at times. So I think from the balance point of view, the AFL is a very difficult place to navigate to achieve any sorts of balance. And as we spoke about earlier with regards to the different club schedules, some clubs make it more possible than others. I think Geelong is probably the outstanding one over the last few years that, you know, there's, there's no doubt that some of their biggest recruits have joined for that reason, um, you know, amongst the money and, and the, the chance to be successful. And I think for me, um, what I found when I finished footy is that when you get to choose what you do and when you get to have control over the things that you participate in, the people that you connect with, and sometimes it's just about saying, no, you don't want to do something. And no, you don't want to be treated like you are treated at times as a footballer by fans or coterie members or whatever it is. It's an incredibly empowering part of the life that most people take for granted. Um, and it's something yeah. that you really do miss when you're playing AFL footy. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Cause it's, it's, um, it's a big part of the AFL system. Like, you know, if you the, the study thing, I, I was the same. I put all my eggs into one basket and said, I don't need a plan B. So I'm um, plan A is football and everything is football, football, football. And when you tie your identity to it, it and then when you lose it, 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 it can hit pretty hard. But um, I was the same, I didn't study. And, and that's one thing I wish I did because when you put all your eggs in one basket and then something doesn't go right, then you got nothing to fall back to or you got yeah. nothing to get away from. And um, so that's a big thing. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, but it's all, it's all lessons, right? Like, exactly. you know, I didn't study in the first year. I regretted it. As soon as I came back to Melbourne, I knew that studying was a good idea. So I enrolled in commerce at Monash, didn't work out. It was too hard, to be honest with you. I just didn't have enough time. And then I was traveling and the tutors weren't teaching me how to do microeconomics. So that was a pain. Um, and then, you know, then I started doing some diploma stuff, which was really easy, but at least it was achievable and I could be confident that I would tick it all off. And then eventually got to the stage where I was doing university full time um, through sort of the last nine or nine to 12 months, I'd say, in my career, which was challenging, right? Like night school, three hours, three times a week, straight after training, assignments, like it was it was full on. But at the same time, it was really, really worthwhile. And me, Jack McRae and Zane Cordy did all the blocks together. It was it was bloody awesome. Um, and as much as I found it you know, difficult to juggle everything at different times, at least it gave me some sense of, hey, I'm actually really good at this mm -hmm. and I'm contributing. And it doesn't require me to be, you know, fitter or stronger or my teammates to kick me the ball when I'm open. It just requires me to do some work <laughs> and pay attention and listen to the teacher. Like yeah. it's such a simpler existence and such a volatile game that the AFL uh, football world is. Yeah, we get that sense, uh, that greater sense of autonomy when you notice that there's more to life outside of footy. And um, I guess at that time of what you're talking about, it's through a lens that's a from a younger younger self. And, and with a lot of the work that you're doing now, Tom, um, you place an importance of connecting with youth. And um, I was just wondering if you could share a bit more about that and why you think it'd be important for youth to gain more awareness around these issues that we're talking about. 
Yeah, it's very simple. I mean, I touched on it a little bit earlier, right, which is I went to a semi-private school, very religious, Luther College. Now, I'm not a particularly religious person, but they offered a really balanced education around, you know, spirituality and values, um, you know, and, and values and, yeah. you know, academia was the forefront. You know, sport was sort of the fifth priority there. And actually, um, you know, I really didn't have to participate too much except for where I wanted to. And honestly, that was like mixed netball and we played like one term of footy and it was, it was all fun, but it was all about, uh, as you said, it was about values, about who you are. It's about, you know, doing well as a, uh, in the academic realm. And even amongst all of those things, we never spoke about this stuff, right? Yeah. And and what I remember as an experience point of view, and it's not something I'm proud of, but it's in, endemic of the times is <clears throat> the individuals who had mental health challenges back then, you know, had they had aid workers to help them do their education. They missed a heap of school because they were, you know, depressed or anxious or whatever else they might've had that basically kept them from being able to participate in normal studies. Now, obviously, as we know now, given that we've spoken about it for the last 10 years, you know, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of people in my cohort who at different stages had their own issues, but that we never spoke about it. And as I said earlier, when I uh, approached these issues with sleep and then suddenly with anxiety and later depression, it was all news to me. Like this was a new thing that I had to experience. And whenever you find something new, you've got to work out what it is, you've yeah. got to discover what it is, you've got to work out how it's affecting you, you've got to work out if it's going to last, if it's going to go away. That's all before, it's like defining the topic before you actually go and solve for it. And so all that did was meant that the can just get getting kicked down the road. And so to answer the question specifically, why do I think it's important to talk to you is that one, I think that if you look out there um, in the, in the, in the ethos or in the, in the atmosphere, yeah. there's, there's two sort of bookends of what mental health is approached um, to people. One is that everyone's got it all the time and that you should, um, you know, just be, you know, extremely understanding that there are issues that people have, which is definitely true, but also there's not, you know, attached to that, there's, there's this lack of encouragement to say, Hey, there's, you know, some really important things you can do to take care of yourself some really important things and principles that you can abide by that will help you be really successful. Yeah. And that, you know, feeling anxious is one thing, but feeling anxious before you go play a big game of footy is totally normal. Yeah. Right? It's helping you get aroused. It's helping you perform at your best. And so I think at that end, you know, I'm really trying to say to people, Hey, be proactive, understand what this stuff is. And if it pops up, do what you need to do to solve it straight away. Yeah. Don't don't wait for for it to get out of hand, and don't just think that it's normal to feel bad all the time. Like there are things you can do to help yourself. And on the other bookend, what I find is that the conversation is it's incredibly scary to young people. Right? Yeah. It's these incredibly scary stories of lifelong ailments and issues that people can't get over, and um, you know, talking about suicide all the time, and all this sort of stuff. And I don't think either ends without the right message in the right way are as useful as what they could be. And so for me, when I talk to young people, I very much come from the point of view that I'm not here to give you advice. I'm no. not here to, how to tell you how to live your life. I'm not here to even tell you what's going to work perfectly for you. All I'm here to tell you is that I didn't know about this stuff. And at 21 years old, I was a millionaire. I was playing AFL football and I just won a premiership. And I was the most successful footballer in the country when I was 18. And I still ran into a whole range of issues because yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Anyone can have that issue go off and make decisions that are the best for you long term. So 
that's why I connect with the young people like I do. And I do truly think my life would have been different. I'm not saying it would have been better or worse. I think I would have been more prepared if someone had had that conversation with me when I was 17 or 18. Yeah, yeah. that's an unbelievable last three minutes. Yeah, well, no, that was great. And that, I guess and then, like, when you're talking about that, there's just so many similarities and and to what we're trying to do with Switched On, like with this platform that we're trying to get people like yourself on to share their insights so we can help them become more aware so they can learn and grow from life's experiences to, well, grow as a person and then grow towards fulfilling their potential, you know? So, no, thank you for that. And, um, yeah, uh, well, yeah, Braden, what did you want to say? Yeah, so to you're talking to youth, right? And so when you go and talk to, to the to the boys this is more for i guess the blokes out there but that, that masculinity like like it's what is real masculinity do you think because in the in the media in society these days it's you know lifted 500 pounds and or kilos or whatever on the deadlift and and being strong and all this sort of thing and you can't shed emotions you can't support your friends in a loving and vulnerable place but what is what is real masculinity do you mean and and i'd yeah, love you to sort of touch on that yeah, well, you know, I, I'd rather use, you know, I'd rather use Aussie mateship because I'm not the expert on defining masculinity across the board. I think that, you know, yes, there are some traits undeniably that, you know, being strong and fit and healthy and all that sort of stuff, hey, that's not a bad thing, right? Yeah. But it's also not the only thing. It's a diverse topic. And I think finding the right thing that suits you is is ideal. And I think that, you know, we get a lot of signs across, you know, our lives that, help us know if we're on the right track. I mean, I love sport. I think sport's been you know, incredible for me and incredible for so many people, but it's not the only thing that you can do to be, you know, a masculine person. That's, sure. that's you know, that's obvious. Now, in terms of the mateship thing, which I think I'm probably a little bit well more well-versed on being an Australian kid, yep. is that, um, you know, I think we, we always thought about, you know, mateship as this, um, you know, it's sort of on the field stuff. It's physicalness. It's protecting your mates. It's, you know, looking out for them, you know, maybe if they get in a fight, you go and look after it, whatever it is, right? There's always yeah. that stuff. And I think, you know, I grew up with a father who was born in Faulkner, um, which is in Broadmeadows for those who aren't from, from Melbourne. It's quite a rough part of town and, and ended up growing up in Ringwood, which was you know, relatively rough back then too. And, you know, dad's perspective when I was going through footy and, and in my younger life was one of the fact that he was exactly that. He was a tough bastard, right? He was a tough <laughs> man who could fight playing footy. He's an Aussie battler who turned not much into a whole heap by working his absolute butt off for 50 years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the time, I reckon when I approached him that I was struggling, I think, you know, his perspective was keep going, mate. It's, it's, you know, it'll turn around. Just keep going at it. And, and look, that's not bad advice. I think there's some nuance behind it that was missing. Yeah. But if you talk to him now, you know, now that he's retired, this is probably seven or eight years on from that moment. And, you know, he's, he's understanding and he goes, mate, like so many of my mates, you know, they tried my tactic and it just didn't work for them. So they ended up having issues or divorces or breakdowns. And, and it, you know, there's heaps and heaps of stories. And I think that what's changing is the fact that that generation, my father's generation in particular, are being more cognizant of the fact and more open about the fact that this stuff has been around forever. And now for me, what I try and talk to people about, and let's take, for instance, some other community footy and netball club last night, the responsibility of a place like that now has to extend beyond that Aussie mateship that I defined earlier. It's got to be beyond that where you check in on your mates, you look out for them, you actually ask them questions about how they're going. If you notice a change in their behaviour, you investigate it, um, you understand what you're looking for in terms of symptoms, 
you understand where you can go to access support very quickly uh, and from a you know financially free point of view ideally like lifeline yeah and you take care of each other in that way no, and the I reason for that is that. very simple right because if you're vulnerable, right? Like, and I've been in a very vulnerable state in my life where, you know, a million bad thoughts were going through my head. Now, I had an avenue to talk to a psychologist who I'd spoken to before. Many people don't have that option. And if you only broach the topic of mental health and issues around, you know, depression or suicide or whatever it is with your mates, and you don't have to be as explicit, but if you never have spoken about the emotions that you feel or that your mate feels, um, before you get to that moment, it's very difficult to start then. And so you can go up to your mates and you can say to them, look, guys, if you are ever having issues and I don't care what they are and you don't know what to do or you feel lost or you feel scared or whatever it is, come and talk to me. Yeah, I've got no idea whether I'm gonna be able to solve the issues for you, but I promise you they'll sit there in the mud and in the rain and in the issues that you're facing until we get through them together. That's all you gotta say. That's where true mate. I think that's, yeah, that's that's what mateship is and that's you know again it's not that where the old mateship is wrong it's just that it doesn't encompass enough and i think trying to get that right is um is a massive part of what our community needs to work on because at the end of the day there's never going to be enough psychologists psychiatrists or doctors to fix this problem yeah part of it has to be solved by um, the society that we want to build for each other absolutely and adding on to that mateship whether it oh girl, girls and boys like i think if you can first come back to improving like working yourself as a person so like you can address what you're going through but also wanting and being curious for your friends of friends around you friends and family around you so like when they're down you can aid them and then when you're down they can do the same because so then you're setting that example yeah that's what we would call it put your own oxygen mask on first yeah that's the uh that's the, the analogy that was often told to me. You know, you're on an airplane, yeah. air mask comes down, put yours on, put your friends on, put kids on, whatever's sitting next to you. But if you can't take care of yourself and you can't be on top of things, um, you know, it's it's very difficult uh, to be able to help others. And, and in fact, it can be quite dangerous to help others when you're really struggling yourself because you only have a limited sort of capacity in your cup anyway. Yeah, yeah. So we've touched a lot about... Um, your journey, your footy journey, and, and and the mental health around it, but mate, it wasn't. It wouldn't have all been doom and gloom. There would have had to have been some good parts. So, what like, what was the best part of that journey of your AFL journey? Was it making mates? Was it friendships? Yeah, friendships for life. What what was? What did you enjoy? And what's your love for footy like now? Yeah, oh mate, I had some great times. You know, winning a premiership is pretty phenomenal, especially yeah. since club and won one in over six decades. I mean, I've got some friends that have lasted. You know, my time, time again. You know, Mitch Wallace, my best man. Nick Lawson, who I met through the juniors, one of my groomsmen. <clears throat> These are all very important people to me in my life. Um, and likewise, I think you know, one of the great. Uh, you know, we talk about identity following footy, Brandon. We we're talking about before, and and the challenge is that people will tell you that what you pick up during your life as a footballer will help you in your next stage which is true, but the problem is fitting it into a box that fits into the society that you're joining in a way, right? And I think for me, many of the traits around understanding what feedback and performance and clarity of communication and being able to connect with people from all different walks of life, being able to push to try and exceed as a team, being able to solve problems on the run, all these things are great and they all came from footy, but trying to find yourself in an arena, you know, in the corporate world or in the trade or wherever it is, um, 
where you can actually utilize them is the real challenge. And that's what the transition post footy is actually about. It's actually not about developing new skills so much as finding a place that you can really leverage the ones that you have whilst learning some, um, some others as well. So but I think to be honest, footy, the best part of that footy is just the fact that I've, I'm through it now. I have really good memories from what was undeniably a challenging part of my life at different stages but I've got great friends to, to show for it. And I've got a good, a great experience and a great family around me. And um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a hell of a ride and I enjoy football these days in a much less formal capacity as just a fan of the game. Um, not to say that I'm back to where I was before I played, but um, one day, slowly but surely. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's, that's good to hear, you know, because people could be out there thinking that, you know, you didn't enjoy and you hated it and there wasn't any good times, but obviously there, there was some and, Mate, we'll we'll wrap we'll, we won't be too far off wrapping it up and we'll let you get back to work. But um you talked about earlier, you know, you had the the money, the fame, the fortune, what everyone defines as success. But what does success mean to you right now? Not in football terms, not just work, but just in general, around everything. Because a lot of people have a, a a lot of different definitions of what it is, but I'd love to know what success means to you. Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. I mean, I think it's doing everything that I possibly can to the best of my ability, right? So I can yeah. fill my life as full as I possibly can with a, you know, a, a constant um, eye for trying to find the right tension between work, family and fun, um, but doing it all, at, you know, as well as possible. And I think that, you know, right now at the moment, I have a really good grasp on that. I'm able to be a father, I'm able to be around my, my wife and be a husband. I'm able to be an ambassador these businesses to be a speaker and to be um you know a worker at ever performance head of performance and do all of those things in a way that's conducive to success because you know whether it's tangible or not what we do in one part of our life tends to lead to to the other parts and they bleed in together um you know we're not living in isolation doing these different things so i think that's what success looks like for me um you know all of those things are important to me all of those things require interactions with people that i care about respect and trying to make sure that I do my part and do a really good job of it, I think is what success looks like for me and what that actually tangibly looks like into the future. Who knows? Yeah. We'll see, mate. But um, yeah, one day at a time at the moment. No, thank you for sharing that time. And um, thank you for chatting to us today. We're super grateful um, to, yeah, gain these insights. And I'm hoping that um, the listeners have also resonated with a lot of the points you've put forward and, um, yeah, just before we let you go, um, if you, is there anything else you want to um, say to us or the listeners before we let you go? No, nothing else, guys. I, I really appreciate having you on and uh, having me on, and um, keep doing what you're doing. I think you know young people making an impact in this area by sharing what they believe is the best way forward by having conversations like these and, and creating communities around them is is something that I'm truly passionate about in my own right. Absolutely, mate. Well, and to see uh, to see you guys doing well as well is great. So thanks, good luck mate. with everything in the future. Cheers, mate. Well, uh, yeah, if you're have, ever he- heading over to WA, make sure you let us know. We can hopefully do another collab or another podcast or something. That'd be great. Funnily enough, I was supposed to be over there this week, but something came up. So is that for the, so is that for the, uh, the Margaret time. River Pro, mate? You meant to be on tour? <laughs> <laughs> so one Not thing quite. to leave you with, mate, is where can we find you? Um, you know, people, because you're obviously you're doing a lot, so... If people want to get in contact with you or, or get you to, to speak, um, you know, to show your insights and, and things like that, um, where can we all find you? Just your hashtags. I mean, your 
your hashtags, your, <laughs> your socials, accounts, and um, and your platforms. Just T- run TikTok. Yeah, best place, best best place. Yeah, don't have TikTok. <laughs> I'm a bit old, bit old for TikTok, but, um hit, Yeah, just hit me up on LinkedIn um, or on Instagram. Um, you can search me up. I don't know what my handles are on both of those, but um, yeah, always uh, always looking to to go out and speak to new people and, and make new connections. So. Um, that's the that's the best way, mate. And yeah. uh, and also, I've got a manager, James Pitcher, who's a Bravo, but you don't have to talk to him because he charges commission. So just go, just <laughs> go straight come straight to me. <laughs> yeah, I'll be sure. I'll be sure to include them in the in the show descriptions. But uh, but yeah, thanks a lot, Tom. Have a good rest of your day, mate. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you liked it, please like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, leave a review, all that jazz. We love your support, and we'd love for you to continue supporting us. If you want more info and want to know what we've got coming up, please head to our Instagram, chuck us a follow. And even check out our website for more episodes, resources, recommendations, and lots, lots, lots more. Links are attached in the description below. Cheers.